0: On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther King, or Martin Luther, excuse me, nailed his 95 Theses to the doors of the Wittenberg Castle Church. Now, Luther's ideas and writings changed the course of history, religious and cultural history, from that time on. His 95 Theses, uh, And and they basically were statements, beliefs that he had, challenges that he had with the current teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, had two central beliefs. And these were the two central beliefs that really began the Protestant Reformation. The first one was this. The Bible is the central religious authority that humans may reach. Uh, the, the, The Bible, basically what he's saying is the Bible is the final authority for faith and practice. It's it's. The final authority, not the church that's number one. The second one is that humans may reach salvation only by faith and not by their deeds. So those are the two key beliefs that that, that Luther had in these uh, in his ninety five thesis number one, the Bible's the final authority. number two, a person is not made right by their good deeds. on November ninth fifteen eighteen the Pope condemned Luther's writings as conflicting with the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. On April 17th uh, 1521, Luther appeared before the Diet of Worms in Germany. And he refused to recant his writings. Luther concluded his testimony with a defiant statement, and maybe you've heard him, or you've seen the documentary on him. He, he said this. He says, "Here I stand, God help me." I can do no other. This October 31st will mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, It is uh, fitting today that we look back and uh, we say, what does the free church believe in the area of the Bible? What does it believe about the Bible? Do we agree with Luther and say, yes, the Bible is the final authority? And if we do say that, why do we say that? Is it trustworthy? Can we really trust the Bible? So that's what we want to look at this weekend. We want to say, can we really trust the Bible? And essentially what I'd like to do is just share a couple of reasons why I think the Bible is absolutely trustworthy. But first, what I want to do is I want to read you The Free Church Statement on the Bible. Now, what we're doing in this series is we're looking at what does the free church believe about God, Jesus Christ, the Bible, you know, man, sin, salvation, Jesus' return, all those different things. So we're kind of chipping away at it week by week. And this is our second week, and we're looking at this statement of what does the free church believe about the Bible. Well, here it is. Let me read it to you. We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings. The complete revelation of His will for salvation. The ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. I love the way they did this last part of the statement. I really just think this is really well written. Therefore, it is to believe in all it teaches, obeyed in all it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. I think that's really just a really great way to just summarize how it applies. Now, I want to make a few comments about the statement, and then I want to uh, get into why I think the Bible is trustworthy. Um, One of the phrases that has been through the history of the free church is, And you've heard me say it on various weekends, is where is it written? Where is it written? And what we mean by that is, show me the chapter, show me the verse. This is our final authority, so if it's our final authority, anything that I say or anyone else says or anyone else teaches, we should say, show me where that is in the Bible, because I want to make sure it's from the Bible and not just from you. So that's the first thing. Secondly, we believe that the Bible is verbally inspired. That means the very words in the Old Testament and New Testament were given to us by God through human authors. Now, what does that mean? That means that God gave us His Word just as He wanted with the exact words that He wanted Using the vocabulary, using the histor history and the education and the different uh, vocab, you know, just a different knowledge of each of the writers to accurately record exactly what he wanted, without error. Uh, in other words, God superintended the whole process. Peter will look at that a little bit. Peter says that the the, the the writers didn't just say, you know, I'm inspired to write, and Moses did, did says, well, I'm inspired to write today, or John says, I'm inspired to write today. I think I'll just write. No, it says that they were like a sailboat, that they were driven along. And the wind of the Holy Spirit directed them, but using their vocabulary. And as you read, especially as you read, the, I'm not a, an expert on the Old Testament. I'm not an expert on the New Testament. I have taken Greek. You can uh, read the Greek of the different authors. For instance, John is very basic. You know, Most Greek grammars and Greek classes will begin with the Gospel of John. And then you get to Luke, it's like he's using technical words, you're, you're looking at a lexicon, you're looking at his grammar, and Paul, in Ephesians, he has a statement that goes on and on and on and on, it's one sentence, and, and so it's just different, it's just different. You can almost tell by reading the Greek who wrote this. Just like if you were to read a letter from one of your kids, you would know which, if they didn't see it signed and didn't know the handwriting, you would know which kid it's from. But God did it without error. We also believe that the Word of God is authoritative. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. Um, and we believe that the Bible is without error in the autographs, the, the original writings. Now, we don't have the autographs today. We have copies of copies of copies of copies. Should we be concerned? No. The reason we shouldn't be concerned is that we have, uh, as we found new scrolls and older scrolls, and we looked at them, they just verified what we already have. Uh, But we don't have the original autographs and the original writings, but we have very, very close. I mean, there are no issues of faith or doctrine that are in question about who Jesus is or none of that is in question. Now, the two most common problems that people have with the Bible today, and they change, but these are the two most common ones. I want to address those. The first one is this. There's uh, just a common belief out there today that say, you know what? The gospels are nothing more than myths and legends. That's all they are. Uh, They're like a lot of writings. Uh, There's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of writings out there, but they're they're just they're myth. They're they're not they're they're legends. They're they're fictional. Uh, They're not to be believed. And I want to challenge that view because uh, as we look at the Bible and what it says about himself, that's not what it's saying about itself. The Bible is saying something very different about itself. Look at Luke chapter 1, the first four verses of Luke. This is on page 779. If you don't have a Bible, you should have one of these in a, in a, in a chair in front of you or near you. Uh, but on page 779, I want to read you the Luke's words here. Very interesting what Luke says. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. In other words, Luke is saying, I'm writing my gospel to record what has taken place. In other words, the life of Jesus. That's what he's saying here, because that's what he's going to discuss, the life of Jesus. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the very early disciples "...having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have also decided to write a careful account for you, uh, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught." Now, it seems, if you're reading Luke here, he's not saying, well, I'm just kind of writing a story here. It's kind of like this fictional story that has a moral to it. No, he's saying, I'm going to have eyewitnesses here. I'm going to interview them. I'm going to get the story from them. I'm going to write it down accurately so that you can trust it. You see, Luke was a historian. He's not making it up. Uh, he's talking about eyewitness reports of the early disciples. He talks about investigating everything. He tells us that he's going to give a careful account. This is a historic historian, not a fictional writer. All of the Gospels were written within the lifetime of living eyewitnesses. The last Gospel, which most scholars believe was the Gospel of John, was probably written about A.D., 85, maybe 90 at the latest. The New Testament accounts are written too early to be myths. Lots of people would still have been alive to verify or to, to say, well, that's just not true. That's not the way it happened. Um, in fact, we have a number of examples of that in the New Testament. For example, let me give you one. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote probably even... 1 Corinthians was even earlier than some of the Gospels. And here's what he writes. This is on page 879. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 something very important. He says this. This is verse 3 of chapter 15. I passed on to you what was most important. uh, And what I also passed was also had also been passed on to me in other words paul is saying and what he's going to share here is the gospel in my baptism classes i always ask people i say well what's the gospel people say well it's this or it's this or it's this well paul tells us what the gospel is here so paul's saying i'm going to pass on to you what i receive and uh what does he say he says uh, i passed on to you what was most important and what has been passed on to me christ died notice he didn't just die he died for a reason. He died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. Notice, just as the scripture said, and he was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than five hundred of his followers at one time. It seems odd that it could have been a some type of vision or some type of a no five hundred followers at one time. Most of and he says most of whom are still alive, though some have died. In other words, he's saying, as I write this, they're alive. You can go talk to them. You can ask them whether they they, they they heard this, they saw this. He said, I passed on to you what was most important and what has was passed on to me. So he basically says, I'm just passing on to you what was passed on to me. Now, Paul was passing on the good news. Many who were still alive could testify to the validity of his words. And these were written within 15 or 20 years of the events. They are very current. Very current. Many people could call Paul out and say, That's not how it happened, Paul. That's not true the divinity of jesus was very was a very early belief of the church you know if you've ever uh read some of the dan brown books and the da vinci code some of these other basically what he says is you know basically what happened here is a church made this up. They kind of came up with this divinity of Christ. He never claimed to be divinity. The church never believed that till very, very much later, 8200 or so. And, and then it became kind of entrenched in doctrine and the church got a hold of it and they had all the power, so they basically molded the doctrine. Well, that's not true. It's not true. I mean, uh, the divinity was, was decided long before Emperor Constantine, A.D. 200, long before Constantine. In fact, I mentioned this last week, and I want to go there now. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says something very interesting. This is on page 900. I know I have you jumping around a lot, but what are we saying about the Bible? Where is it written, right? Anything that I say, I hope you say, oh, I see that there. I, and Maybe I don't understand it completely, but I see what you're saying, and I see where you're getting it, right? Look at uh, Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11. This is Paul writing. He says, though he was God, speaking of Jesus, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born uh, as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. What's he doing here? He's doing exactly the same thing that Paul did in First Corinthians 15, isn't he? He's sharing the gospel. He's telling the gospel. But he's showing how Jesus played that point. Play. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under heaven. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If some of you, if you have a Bible, you look in your Bible and it has it broken down in poetic form, Right. It's not you know, you read some passages and it's just a paragraph, but then sometimes in some translations you'll see it it's in poetic form. You know why that is? Is because this was an early creed of the church. This is what they believed. This was an early creed of the church. So the belief that Jesus is God was not something that was manufactured at AD two hundred. This was very early on. This wasn't something that happened later after the fact. Let me give you a couple other examples. In Mark chapter 14, and Mark's the only gospel that records this, uh, Jesus is carrying his cross. And remember, in the movie, right? <laughs> he stumbles. And there's this guy who helps him carry the cross. He is like, it, 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 as you read the movie, as you see the movie, he's like, oh, I don't really want to get involved, but then he kind of does, and he, you know, he does it. You know his, some of you know his name. What was his name? Simon. Now so why would, they, but it doesn't just say that. It says he was the father of Rufus and Alexander. And you say, okay, why would Mark, why would the, why would the Gospel of Mark mention Rufus and Alexander? What, what's, what's the point? Well here's the point. The point is, that the people who were contemporary to these events, who knew who Simon was, knew his kids. They were they were they would they when he mentioned the name, they said, "Oh yeah, he is it? Aren't his kids? Don't you do that sometimes? You, 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 somebody's mentioning them. Oh, are they? Do they have kids? Yeah, such and such. That's what he's doing here. It's giving historical references for people. That's the Simon we're talking about because Simon was a common name. So, uh, basically, it's, he, what he's saying is this is real-life history. It's not fiction. It's not fable. Let me give you another one. So, in John chapter 18, Jesus is in the garden. Remember, he goes in the garden. He prays and he asks his disciples not to fall asleep. They fall asleep. He comes back and forth. And finally, he says, Lord, uh, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass. Uh, but then, in, in the midst of going back and checking with his disciples, uh, Judas is signed a basic you know, sold Jesus out, and he, he leads the soldiers to, to capture, take Jesus. And what happens? Peter grabs a sword, and he flicks off the ear of this servant. <laughs> He's just, flop. <laughs> now Jesus takes the ear and puts it back on, but he basically says to Peter, no, 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 that's not what we're doing here. Now, what's interesting, and the point I want you to see is, we know his name. His name was Malchus. Good trivia. If you ever do a Bible trivia, that will probably come up somewhere. What was the name of the servant that Peter lopped? It's only in in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 10. That's the only place you'll find it. But he mentions Malchus. Why does he mention Malchus? Because the people reading that would know Malchus. It It was documented. It's history. He was a real man whom Jesus healed his ear. That's why we have the name. The point is, we're not talking about myths and legends. We're talking about real events in human history recorded shortly after they took place, and they were given by eyewitnesses. They were, they, they took place, and there were eyewitnesses. Okay, so that's the first thing. It wasn't written later on. It was, it was very contemporary, and there are witnesses, and basically, Paul and others basically said, yeah, you can check my work if you want. You know, talk to this guy, talk to this guy, talk to them. And and if I'm lying, check with them, because they'll tell you the same thing I'm telling you. Right. Second problem that some people have with the Bible is they say, well, the problem I have with the Bible is it's full of errors. It's the product of men. It's the product of men. And I said I was going to go back to the the Peter passage, and I want to read that to you. So this is Second Peter chapter 1 and verses 16 through 18. This is on page uh, 939 of the chair Bible, 939. And uh, Peter is talking about how, his, how he wrote and how the other apostles and the other writers of Scripture wrote. Uh, and he's actually referring to to the Old Testament too. And this is what he says. Very interesting. This is Second uh, Peter 1, verse 16. For we're not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what Peter is saying here is this. He's saying, when Jesus Christ came, we told you this. We didn't make this up. We experienced this. We were there. Now, Peter's going to make reference to a couple of events in his life. Notice what he says here. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy we ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain because of that experience we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed to you by the prophets what's peter referring to he is referring to the time when jesus took peter and a couple of the disciples to the mount of transfiguration and they were watching you know, this whole thing take place and the glory of God was being revealed. And Peter basically, you know, is one of those guys who's feeling very uncomfortable and very out of place. And he says, should we make a few tents for you to dwell in? <laughs> he didn't know what to say. That's what he's referring to. He says, we were there. We saw the glory of God. We were there. And he says, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. But notice what he said. So, so he's saying, he's he's referring back because there are a couple of Old Testament saints there, on the, on the, and we don't have time to go in who was there and why were they there. But there's significance to that. And basically, Peter's saying that just affirmed the Old Testament to us. But then he goes on to say this: You must pay close attention to what they wrote he's speaking in the old testament prophets for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts and then he says this notice what he says very important above all you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative no those prophets were moved by the holy spirit and they spoke from God. What Peter is saying is really important. He's saying, these, God, the, the prophets, the one who wrote the Old Testament, those prophets, those writers of the Old Testament, they didn't just get inspired and say, I think I'll write this book. Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, the Psalms, 1 Samuel, and Genesis. And, uh, they were moved by God. The, the Spirit of God moved them and directed them. And uh, it, the word there that he uses where it says they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The idea is this, a similar phrase is used of <clears throat> the wind pushing the sail of a sailboat, directing, giving it power, giving it uh, the, the utterance. <clears throat> what we're saying here is this, that we in the word of God in the Bible have God's exact word through the personality of the authors without error. That's what Peter, and that's what the New Testament teaches. That's essentially what the New Testament teaches. Now, some people struggle with that. They say, well, it just seems very hard to believe. And I'll just say this to you. If you can get past Genesis 1-1, then every other miracle in the Bible is pretty much chump change. Right? In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. Okay, we're done. You know, check, please. We're done. You know, any other miracles, pretty easy. This is not this is not very difficult. Right. Um, So Peter is uh, in this context. He's talking about the false teachers and he's telling his readers that they need to listen to what God says, not the false teachers. Now, how has God spoken in verses 16 to 18? He says, we saw Jesus himself on the Mount of Transfiguration these were the Old New Testament authors. They were either eyewitnesses like John P, P, Paul or Peter. They actually saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead, or they were like Luke who talked with the surviving eyewitnesses and put the accounts together. So they were witnesses, or they had interviewed witnesses. In other words, these are not legends. They're not hearsay, they're not fiction. Um, it doesn't make the Old Testament obsolete. Peter uh, Peter says, "No, you we we need the Old Testament." But in verses 19 through 21, he says, "We also have the prophetic message of the Old Testament, which was completely reliable." And he says this: The Old Testament is just as reliable as the New Testament. The Old Testament writers were superintended by the Holy Spirit, because God is sovereign. We talked about that last week. He is able to produce people who have been prepped by everything in their lives to sit down and write exactly what God wants. Them to write every word, every word. They are human, but they are also directed by God. So when you read the Bible, it's not their interpretation. It's God's word. He didn't say, you know, well, what what did you think of that event? He said, describe this event. Write about this event. In other words, what Scripture says, God says. What Scripture says, God says. Now we live in a world today and we'll talk about the authority sometime but uh basically people say well I know the word says this but I don't know if I agree with that. Okay. Do so at your own peril, but that's what God says. God's what scripture says God says. Uh this is not just Peter's view because you may say well that's Peter's view of scripture. Peter's view is that that God superintended. But, but 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 what did Jesus say? You know, some people are big about Nowadays, there are actually groups within Christian, the Christian church that they have what they call the red-letter Bible. And they say, the only words that really matter to me are the words in red. That, you know, some Bibles have Jesus' words in red. And they say, that's, the, that's all we should listen to and obey. But uh, notice what Jesus says. Jesus says something very interesting. And maybe you didn't notice this, uh, but it's a very interesting passage of Scripture uh what I'm going to show you is let me show you let me tell you what I'm going to show you and then I'll show you and then you can say whether you agree with me. But I'm going to show you from the scriptures what I'm what I think I'm proving. And then you can say whether you believe it or not. I'm going to show you that Jesus had as high a view, if not higher view of scripture than I don't think he had a higher view than Peter or Paul or any of the other writers. But I think he held, had just as high a view as Peter did. Uh, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, Peter, or Jesus says something very, very interesting. He's talking about, he's confronted with the idea of divorce. And, uh, basically he, Jesus, or Jesus gives his answer. And here's what he says. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? Now notice he says, haven't you read the scriptures in verse 4? Jesus replied, they recorded from the beginning that God made them male and female. He said, this explains why a man, uh, and he said, this explains why a man, and he uh, said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one uh, split apart what God has joined together. And sometimes we read that in vow, what God has joined together, let no man's, you know, put, the old language is put asunder or split apart, Right. Okay, so you say, okay, so what? You're quoting, you know, Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? What is Jesus quoting? He's quoting the book of Genesis. Jesus is quoting Genesis chapter 2. And he's, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Now, let me read you verse two, chapter 2, verse 24. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united. And what's interesting about this is Jesus isn't quoting what God said in Genesis, because if you read, you know, if you read that passage in two, chapter two, you know, God says this, and then the writer of Genesis basically puts this editorial comment in, and the editorial comment is verse two, chapter two, verse twenty-four. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? This quote isn't God speaking. He's quoting an editorial comment by the author of Genesis. But what is he doing? He's treating it as equal part of Scripture. He's saying God said this. God didn't just say the quote. He said this too through the writer of the book of Genesis. Let me give you another verse. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. I made allusion to it. It's on page 736. The whole verse will be up on the screen. But this is what Jesus says. So it's essentially what Jesus, if Jesus were to come uh, and, and, you know, let's say that there were, let's say that there were all these errors. We had the wrong books of the Old Testament. There were just all sorts of these, you know, things that you couldn't trust. And, it, you know, there was just a, you, you, you say, well, did we get everything right? So Jesus comes, and he says this about the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law, and when he says God's law, he's talking about the totality of the Old Testament. Not one detail, not the smallest detail of the law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. In other words, Jesus is putting his... His stamp of approval. What is a jot? The jot is the smallest. It's the tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's just a little squiggle, right? The, uh, the tittle is just a, a, a part of the Hebrew letter. In other words, every letter of the Bible is divinely inspired, he's saying. Every letter of the Bible is. He, in other words, he's saying, you know, if there were problems, if there were errors, he's saying, oh, I don't know why you put this book in there. It doesn't belong there. Or, you know what? This is wrong. This should be this. The the scribe must have introduced an error. There's issues here. No, what he did was he he put a stamp of approval. He says, not only is this God's Word, but every part of it from the beginning to the end is going to be fulfilled. Every letter. In other words, the thing I want you to see is, Jesus had a high view of Scriptures. He had a high view of the Scriptures, just like Peter, just like Paul, just like John, just like Luke. Now, I want to close with this thought. Our culture drills into us that we are our own life authorities. We get to make our own choices. We get to make our own decisions. No one has the right to tell us what to do. No not the Bible, not God, not anyone. It's it's like the poem, and we've heard it. It matters not how straight the gate, how changed with punishments, or charged with punishments. The scroll. I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. It's the famous poem that we've heard. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the spirit of uh, spirit, and I want to read you that passage. This is uh, Matthew four. We're going to close with this passage. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is the enemy doing? The enemy is tempting Jesus tempted Jesus by challenging him to take his life into his own hands, to be the captain of his own soul. Two very interesting points. Number one, Jesus fulfilled what the nation of Israel failed to accomplish. So Jesus was, was uh, fasted 40 days and 40 nights. How long was the nation of Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. And then uh, they, they were tempted throughout the 40 years. Jesus waited went through the 40 days and 40 nights until he was weak and hungry and thirsty and came to a place where then he was tempted. The nation of Israel failed, so they didn't go into the promised land. Jesus accomplished. He was obedient. Jesus was the one who fulfilled it. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God calls Israel his firstborn son. That son failed the wilderness test. Jesus, God's only begotten son, Passed the wilderness test by showing his obedience to God's word. It is written. He put himself under the authority of God's word. Jesus was tempted to take control of his life and to call his own shots. Prove that you are the son of God. That's what the enemy said. But what does Jesus do? He quotes and obeys scripture. The only trustworthy guidance to be found today is not your feelings. It's not your culture It's not the person that you want to please. It's God's word. The question I want to ask you as we close is this. How are you allowing God's word to become your daily bread? Today, our culture has rejected God's word as outdated and irrelevant. But Jesus didn't view the scriptures as irrelevant. He viewed them as true and life-giving. He viewed them as authoritative. And here's the thought I want to ask you. How can a follower of Jesus say they believe in Him but fail to receive and obey the Bible that He fully trusted and and, 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 uh, obeyed? Paul says all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. The question that we have today is this. Who or what will be our final authority? Who or what will be our final authority? Jesus basically said when he was tempted to take his life into his own hands, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus put himself under the authority of God's word. If we are his followers, how is it that we think that's optional? May God help us to not only believe that this is his word, but to behave that, that, like this is God's word. Stand with me, let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for revealing yourself in your word to us. Thank you for the high view that Jesus had of the scriptures that he basically affirmed them for us. May we have the same high view that Jesus had and may it make a difference in our lives, in our behavior, in our choices, in our decisions. May it be a lamp unto our feet, our feet, and a light unto our path. May it be a mirror where we see our hearts. And we understand that we have become dark and need to repent. May it be a, just a reminder that we are your children, created in your image, and that there is a plan and a purpose for each of our lives. May it help us remember the sacrifice of your Son on our behalf. May it do all this and more. May it break our hearts as we put ourselves under its authority and affirm it. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.